So it is the preacher's prerogative to change the scripture lesson at the last minute. Don't worry, if you read what was sent to you, it will still apply. But I've chosen instead this morning's text to be from the letter to the church in Ephesus. It's Paul's letter. He's writing to a church struggling over what it means to be faithful and not fearful. The text comes to us from Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, and I pray that the Spirit will open up for us an understanding of this word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around, around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet. Put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of the, of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we are on Peace Sunday, second Sunday of Advent in the season of peace. Christmas peace is predominantly the emotion that is meant to be evoked in us is this sense of peace. And yet most of us think of peace like that young, thin, blonde, Mississippi Miss America contestant, baton, baton twirling uh, gift, who says in front of the camera when asked, what do you want to do with your life? And always usually says, I want to work for peace, world peace. And what she means by that, of course, is no more war and no more battles and no more suffering and no more pain, but peace especially at Christmas. If any season is about it, it's this one. I can't help but think of Isaiah 9 through 6. We know this text. We'll sing it next week during the Messiah. But next week, the week after. For a child, it is next week. It goes. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. And the text you were going to read this morning from Zechariah is when he sees his son, who would become John the Baptist, and he anoints him. He says, By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
And this, of course, was followed at Jesus' birth by the angels scaring the bejesus out of the shepherds when they were in their fields watching their flocks, suddenly breaking forth with the multitude of the heavenly host, proclaiming God and singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those he favors. It's Christmas peace. So why is your preacher about to stand up and talk about Christmas conflict? Because I think that there is no way to peace without first going to war. Now if that word is too militaristic for you and strong for you, then struggle or conflict. Whichever word you choose, there is no way there without a struggle. The operative word in our text this morning was heavenly peace, not earthly peace. And it doesn't seem too out of order to hope that there would be earthly peace. But have you ever wondered why every announcement from God, either through angels or from Jesus or anyone else, always comes with the disclaimer, do not be afraid, then peace be with you. Then the angel of the Lord stood upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And the angel said, do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good. Why would that invoke fear? Do not fear seems to be the underlying Christmas message. With the birth of this newborn infant, Herod feared so much that he slaughtered the innocents. The angel said, do not be afraid, yet still we are. It always happens with the reality of God when God breaks into the world. And this reality is about the fact that there can be no peace, paradoxical as it sounds, unless it is preceded by struggle. In fact, the word shalom for peace in Hebrew, shalom, It's a blessing. The word for shalom actually means equilibrium. It's the deepest meaning. It means when you have two opposing forces that are brought to rest like a seesaw, two weights on each side, at that point of equilibrium, it's shalom, it's peace. It also means well-being and healing and fullness and life, but it but it really means this sense of equilibrium. And if you think about all the things in life that are true, that is certainly true. We have a left brain and a right brain trying to find equilibrium. We have gravity. We have uh, particles, atoms, neutrons, electrons, protons. You have negative energy. You have positive energy. All of these forces come together to try to find some equilibrium. But, you see, if it all ends up in equilibrium and rest, there is no growth, right? It's just static. Growth only comes out of the struggle between those two forces, and hopefully the force of life and love wins out. That's our promise. But it still involves a struggle. Anytime we say, I just want to rest in peace, or I want a little rest or peace and quiet, quiet, as my uncle used to always say when asked what he wanted for his birthday, I mean, really, that means rest in peace as in being buried. It's the only real, ultimate peace in that sense that we will get 
The peace that God offers is the peace that passes all understanding. It is a spiritual peace. And when God enters our world, whatever the balance that we have, it gets upended. Just like those three people I mentioned, Isaiah proclaims the coming of the wonderful one and the bringer of peace. He ends up being exiled from Jerusalem. And John the Baptist, who will bring on his feet the gospel of peace, he ends up having his head amputated. And Jesus, the Prince of Peace, Jesus, the very presence of God's peace, is crucified. At every story, when God enters in, it's not peace that happens, but conflict. In fact, Jesus says it in Matthew. He's talking about all of the family that he lives with, and he says, don't think I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. We have to separate ourselves from our mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children, even our wives, even ourselves. It is that conflict, that sword that is called for. In the Bible and in life, the truth is that real peace, heavenly peace, comes through struggle. But the struggle is not with other people. Did you catch it? Paul says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers and authorities and principalities, powers of darkness. Get this right if you're going to get anything I say today. This passage is not talking about going to war against our enemies or other nations or anyone. Our struggle is not against flesh. It is not a war fought with AK-47s and Abrams tanks and F-35 jets at $85 million a pop. It is not a war led by generals or admirals or presidents. It is not a war fought on the geography of nation states like Afghanistan or Iraq or or Syria. It is the kind of war that calls us into a spiritual battle against the wiles of the devil. I'm not big on this devil thing. At least as far as there's this entity like the devil who's running around out there trying to mess everything up and us in it. I'm not big on this personification of the devil. It's dualistic. God and the devil, two different powers at odds with each other. God, monotheistic God is God. But I am keenly aware of the devil in my own heart. And how much control it takes for me to keep it down. This is the spiritual struggle the struggle against the powers and principalities in all places in ourselves. This means that the battle is not outside of us. It is inside of us. This is where all spiritual war is waged, which is why the armor of God that is given to us in Ephesians is about spiritual strength, faith, hope, love, forgiveness, generosity, gratitude, The spiritual battle is evident wherever we want to fight somebody else. 
It's a battle against the darkness in ourselves. When we project our own evil, our own darkness onto someone else or some other tribe, that's this spiritual battle at war. What is it about when we're in battle with ourselves, we just want to take somebody out? Project it all out there so that we don't have to deal with it in here, like the poor soul who ran over those people walking down the street in Charlottesville last year? Like ISIS, who wage war on the outside so they don't have to deal with the spiritual war going on on their insides? When you're at war with yourself, the powers and principalities in yourself, you got to find somebody else to blame it on. Now, without simplifying this too much, let me say that we're at war with ourselves in all kinds of ways, interpersonally with whether or not we measure up, with the sense of whether we are forgiven or can I forgive someone else. We're at war all over the place with ourselves. But I want to see, see us to see that there's this sort of corporate spiritual battle going on. And, and, and the best way to describe it is it's a battle against ideals that the most idealistic are the most extreme in their fundamentalism and absoluteness, in their certainty and clarity about what is right and wrong and good and bad. That's the spiritual war that we are fighting today. There are three basic powers. The first is political totalitarianism. We call it fascism, we can call it Nazism or communism or any ism, And it is the false promise that free men and women, if we give up our rights and responsibilities and freedoms, if we abdicate all that, we will be given a system that promises material and national and personal security. Freedom for security. It's the spiritual battle. When any nation gives in to the threat to become the most militarily powerful nation on earth as, as opposed to every other motivation than we were given into this principality, the threat that President Eisenhower worried about in his, in his address when he left in 1960 about becoming the great military industrial complex. The truth is that security is one thing under God that we have never been promised That may not be good news to you, but we all die. Security is one thing under God that we have not all been promised. He never says all our wants and needs will be satisfied, our safety assured. Instead, he said, pick up your cross and follow me. While our eternal security is secured on earth, the real life of faith is a risk if we choose to follow Jesus. It was for Jesus and his disciples, and it is for us. Beware of any power that offers us absolute security. It is the Faustian bargain. It wants our soul. The fuel for this this ideology is fear. Our fear, it turns us more to guns and to government than to God. It is a fear at the heart of the most spiritual warfare we fight with. That deep, deep fear that I'm finite. 
The only anecdote the Bible says is this, rejoice, be joyful, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, let your gentleness be made known to everyone. That's not fighting. The Lord is near, do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. This was my mother's favorite verse in the whole Bible. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will be in your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the anecdote. The second power we struggle against is materialism or secularism. It's his own power. It is the belief that we will finally find satisfaction in the devices of this world. Break it down. We determine our self-worth by what we own or what we have or how much we have in the bank or how big our house is or what kind of car we drive or how many diplomas we have or how many hours we book at the law office. That's how we determine our self-worth. That's totalitarianism into secularism. It mistakes God as not the creator but us and it's living by the flesh, Paul says. This is hard to believe, but a recent Atlantic Monthly article about a woman who began to interview the billionaires that she could get in touch with who were willing to have an interview, and there were a gaggle of them or a fold of them or a bunch of them or whatever you you call a group of billionaires, a bunch of billionaires. She interviewed them all and asked the question, how much money would it take before you were finally feeling secure? And by far the majority said, at least a third more than what I have. Why, she asked. Because I compare myself to those in my particular billionaire club, and unless I measure up to what they have, I'm not good enough. They were vulnerable enough to share. That's living by the flesh. When you talk about trickle-down economics, it works for those of us who aren't billionaires too. We are always comparing ourselves to what's on the outside, our insides to what's going on on the outside. It is giving in to the totalitarianism of a secular materialistic world. The only tool we have to battle this power of religious excuse me, of secular certainty is God's unconditional love and grace that simply says, we've heard it 15 times today, that it doesn't matter one whit what you own or what you have earned or what you have felt like you deserve, that you are mine, a child of mine, and I love you unconditionally. That's the spiritual battle that we must always wage. The last battle, I think, is a battle against religious totalitarianism. That promise of salvation and an absolute going to heaven, that promise that if we do it exactly like we're told to do it, then it's all going to work out. That promise that if you give me everything, even your mind, even your thoughts, even your questions, even your doubt, just give me everything and follow lockstep according to the rules of the religion that we happen to follow. That's the the bargain, that's the Faustian bargain too. Because it implies to us that once we follow those rules, 
that the tribe we're now in knows it all, that we are certain and absolute, and God does not offer us certainty and absoluteness when it comes to faith and religion. That's the whole issue of why Adam and Eve ate the tree of knowledge of goodness and evil. They wanted certainty, and they didn't get it. They got exiled. And in a way, they faced their own battle. The tool we have for this is Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. He refused to claim the godness for his own power. So whether it's governmental totalitarianism or material totalitarianism or religious totalitarianism, the fight we have to wage as Christians is against all of the spiritual powers and principalities in that sense that impose themselves on us and want to suck us up in their black hole. And we've got to stand firm, the text says, against it putting on the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation, I'm going to get these wrong, the feet of shoes of peace, the belt of righteousness. That's not self-righteousness. It's the battle against self-righteousness. We put on that and then, you see, we can wage this battle. And then, you see, in the midst of that, we find the peace of Christ that passes all understanding because we've done the work We've done the work. If we want real peace, Christ's peace, it starts there. A struggle against not our enemies of blood and flesh, but the spiritual powers in each of us that want to carry us away on the cloud of darkness. Take up the whole armor of God Peace be with you. Amen.